For one thing, it is, we could say, God's favorite word to describe the inner person. This word appears more than any other word in the Bible for who we are. It appears 981 times uh, to describe the inner person. Uh, Bruce Waukee, an Old Testament scholar, says it's the most important term that we have in the Old Testament to describe who we are within. And it's not just that it appears so many times, it's, it's where it appears. It appears, we could put it this way, the most important verse in the Bible. Now, that might be a little bit of overstatement, might make us a little uncomfortable, but the reason I can say that is when Christ is asked, what's the most important commandment? He uses a commandment that talks about the heart, Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. It appears in other verses, too, that are, are so important. So it's the most used word in the Bible to describe who you are within, but it's also the most misused word. A lot of people use the word heart versus the head. And we're going to talk about this week as to why that's not really the best way to talk. We know what people mean, and we don't want to be too technical about it, but we're going to discover what the Bible means about that. Three, the third reason, it's, it's the most appropriate word. Now, this gets a little bit interesting for you young people, but this is going to be the basis of all our lessons the next three days. And the, the word heart is kind of special in that it has this unified meaning, but it also has three different nuances, or it has three different emphases in Scripture. We use one word to describe all those things. Now, maybe I could explain it this way. Um, and this is kind of hard to explain to people who live in Southern California, and some of you maybe have never actually seen this white stuff that falls from the sky uh, in the winter. And sometimes it's, it's crusted, sometimes it's thin, sometimes it is deep, sometimes it's very fine, sometimes it's big and fat, sometimes it's wet, uh, sometimes it's soft, and sometimes it's kind of slushy, and sometimes it's heavily compact. What am I describing? snow. We have one word to describe all those different types of snow, but the Yupik people, uh, which are Native Americans and Canadians that live in the far north, there are five people groups in Alaska, and the Yupik people of the far north, they have about 13 different, we call them lexemes, different words to describe all these different textures of snow. And the word heart is kind of like this. The heart uh, is one word that can cover all these things, but sometimes it, it's referring to a, a particular function of the heart, as we'll see. And so that makes it a special word, that it's simple enough to reflect this inner unity of who we are, uh, to describe the fact that the heart is, is the control center of who we are. If we are led from this one point, Abraham Kuyper said, uh, there's this, this unity of who we are, and this word heart captures that. But it's also a word that's comprehensive enough to capture these three different functions of the mind, of the heart, and the desires of the heart, and the will of the heart. And that in some places where you find the word heart, it's clearly in that context talking about the thinking function of our inner person. That would be the mind of the heart. Other times it's talking about the longings of our heart, what we want, or that we're hungry and thirsty in our heart. There it's talking about desires. And then some other places it talks about a person who's hard-hearted or a person uh, who has a broken heart. Um, and those are often talking about the will of the heart. And so the mind of the heart is 
All of our understanding, that intellectual capacity that God has given to us so we can understand and, and imagine and remember things. And it's the word heart that's used most often to describe those things, despite what we might think. And the desires of the heart are what the Puritans called the affections. These are our longings, the things that we like or dislike, the things that we love and the things that we, we hate. And then there's the will of the heart, that decision-making part of the heart. And it has two sides to it, a side that is weak and, and strong. As we'll see, one side of it can be enslaved. The other part can be stubborn. It can submit or it can resist. And I'll explain that more on Thursday morning. And what I'm suggesting there to you is nothing new. <clears throat> the Puritans believe this. The Old Testament scholars even today believe this. It's the only time I could ever remember that Old Testament contemporary Bible scholars agree with the Puritans. If you can find another place, I'd like to know. But you can see the definition that's there. If you have the older children's handout or the adults' handout, you can see the definition there of how we have these two aspects of the heart, that the heart is the governing center of a person, which put simply reflects the unity of our inner being and which put comprehensively describes the complexity of our inner being as composed of mind, desires, and will. Now, I know that's a lot, children, uh, to take in tonight, but uh, we're going to come back to and explain some of these things and, and how they actually work. And so you can see already, if you are a young person or the young children, if you have this handout, you can see I just gave the words to fill in those blanks. Unfortunately, I didn't give you enough space. Oh, I have one other announcement to make, too. So when I ran these off, if you have the, the, the adult and teenage version, there's a word that's really hard to read. Which, hard, which word is it? So we've decided the new theme of this camp is the faint heart of faith and repentance. Because it did not copy well. And I'm so sorry about that. So the word heart, it really is there. You have to trust me. All right, let's get back to the lesson. So we've introduced heart, and like I said, each morning we're going to review those things I just talked about that'll set us up throughout the day to talk about uh, those aspects of the heart and how they impact repentance and faith. But let's talk about repentance and faith a little bit. In Acts 20, 21, it talks about how the disciples were testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That captured the gospel proclamation, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you could capture the whole week in a very, very simple way, and this is in one of the handouts from the children, repentance is turning from sin, but faith is turning to Christ. To put it in a very simple way, but I love that way of putting it. Um, I read this, I think it was um, in Burkhoff and repeated by others, that repentance is turning from sin and faith is turning to Christ. Or you could go on and put it this way, adults. Faith is turning from sin to abandon your sin and faith is turning to Christ to abandon yourself. And we'll get back to that a little bit later as to why that's so important to think of faith as abandoning ourself why that is so important. But here I want to say three things about faith and repentance together. First of all, they're both necessary. 
Repentance is absolutely necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Our Lord and Savior says this in Luke 13, 3. He was asked a question about some people who suffered horribly, and he said this, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or in in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a beautiful line in the Confession of Faith, chapter 15, 4. It says, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. It's a beautiful sentence. So repentance is necessary, but faith is necessary as well for justification. To stand right before God, we need faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is that sole instrument of our justification. We, we need faith. And it's faith that matches grace. Paul says something interesting in Romans 4.16. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. These two things go together. Um, our salvation is a gift of God. It's not something we earn. So the only way you can receive it is by faith. So they're both necessary. But they're also inseparable. Thomas Watson put it this way. He was a Puritan. He said, the two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. In another place, he says something similar, that all of our prayers fly to heaven on the wings of faith and repentance. We should always think of faith and repentance together. You can't have one without the other. And you see this in Scripture. As our Lord begins his ministry, what is the very first thing he says? He says, repent and believe in the gospel. And that's why that's on the front of your handout for the adults and the teenagers. It's, it's important to see in a very simple way, this is how Christ preached the, the, the good news. Repent and believe in the good news. These two things go together. So they're both necessary. They're inseparable. But thirdly, they overlap. And we could even say they commingle in a sense. True faith is a penitent faith. It's, it's a repenting faith. And true repentance is a believing repentance. John Murray said that. And we'll talk about why that's so important that a person who is repenting, the reason they have hope is because they're already believing and looking to the mercy of God in Christ. So these, these overlap. That faith is faith in Christ for salvation from sin, John Murray said. That faith already has this idea as well, that of repentance. So it's, it's not that we want to confuse them, but it's okay to see that, that they sort of overlap. The one is kind of passing the baton to the other one like in a relay race. They touch and, and they have a relationship together, and we should never think of them as separate from each other. We should never think of the Father separate from the Son, or the Son separate from the Holy Spirit. And so we have a, a phrase we use in theology. It's a very simple phrase, but it's one of the most important phrases I ever learned, and it will keep you out of trouble. Um, and it goes like this. We can di- they are distinct, but not separate. The Father, 
And the Son and the Spirit are distinct, but not separate. And the same is true for faith and repentance. They are distinct, but not separate. And if you ever are confused theologically, just say they're distinct, but not separate. If you get pulled over by a police for speeding, just tell them they're distinct, but not separate. And he won't give you a ticket. He probably will give you a ticket. But. And so that's really helpful to understand that we can talk about these things in distinction, so we can talk about them, but we should never separate them. It's important to hold those together. No matter how young you are, how old you are, we should always, always hold on to these two precious saving graces to understand that they, they should not be pulled apart. That's very, very important. So let's talk about repentance and faith just for a little bit and give some definitions of these things. And here I want us to consider how uh, the larger catechism and our confession of faith, which are uh, rooted in the Bible, grounded upon the Bible, how they bring these things in relationship to the heart. And that's that's important for this whole week because this whole week is built upon this idea. So the larger catechism, 76, says, Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God. Repentance is wrought in the heart. Now, rot is an old term. We don't, nobody says rot anymore unless you're talking about old fruit. It's, it, fruit is rotting. But this is a different word. It's W-R-O-U-G-H-T. So sometimes if you see a, um, a stairs and you'll see uh, a, some iron going down the side of it, sometimes that iron is, is twisted like this. Now, that iron was, was straight and it got heated up and then they twisted it. It's called wrought iron. It's been worked. And that's what we mean by repentance. Repentance has been worked into your heart by the Holy Spirit. It was wrought there by him. That's what we mean. And so this is in the Bible too, 1 Kings 8.47. It says, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their heart. So you can see in this passage and there are other passages too that talk about repentance as something that comes from the heart. The same is true of faith. The same is true of faith. Our confession, chapter 14, one, chapter 14 is about repentance. It says this, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And the larger Catechism 72 says rot in their heart, the same word that it uses for repentance. And so faith is something that is worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. It's something that is given to us so that we would believe. Now there's all kinds of words that are used in the Bible to describe faith, and we're going to look at those in the, in the coming evenings. Uh, but there are three words that we're going to use to describe faith each of these successive nights, and Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. And those words come out of the Confession, chapter 14, verse 2, where it says the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. And that's how we're going to describe faith in the three different aspects and the way which reflects the heart, accepting, receiving, and resting. But there's all kinds of words that are used in the Bible to describe faith, like believe, trust, accept, look to, 
flee to, lay hold, come to, receive, rest on, commit to, build on, put on, eat, and drink, John 6, and embrace. And so some of these words pop up in definitions we have. Listen to one by John Calvin. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's goodwill to us, which being founded in the free promise given in Jesus Christ is revealed, uh, is revealed in our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so these are passages that show us what faith is, but also that uh, faith is rooted in the heart. Uh, Burkhoff says that. He says, true saving faith is a faith that has its seed in the heart and is rooted in the regenerate life. He also says this. He says, it's quite evident that the seed of faith cannot be placed in the intellect, nor in the feelings, nor in the will exclusively, but only in the heart, the central organ of a man's spiritual being out of which are the issues of life. So this is where faith begins. That's what Romans 10 tells us. Uh, Romans 10, 8 through 11. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So this is where, heart, where faith begins, and this is where Faith grows into assurance. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. So what we're going to see in these, in these coming evenings, if you, if you look in the very last uh, part of, of page two, you see a schedule there. And you can sort of see what I've mapped out already, that tomorrow we're going to look at the mind of the heart, knowing, and then talk in the second session about how does the mind of the heart repent? And we talked about seeing there and how it's repentance that sees its sin. It understands it, sees sin for what it is. And then in the evening session, we'll talk about accepting that, that faith includes knowledge. It includes the mind of the heart. And then Wednesday, we'll talk about the desires of the heart, entitled that loving, and how the heart in repentance grieves uh, that repentance is something, it's, it's emotional. Uh, that a person doesn't really repent merely by mumbling a few words. But then we'll also talk about faith in that same sense, that faith engages, or the desires engage faith by, by delighting. It's not just simply confessing Christ, it's delighting in Christ in our faith and wanting to trust him. And then the last day, Thursday, we'll talk about the will of the heart and how Repentance ultimately is about how the will chooses to turn. That's what repentance is. It's turning. We'll talk about that. And then last of all, our last session, uh, resting, that faith is trust, which was the most important concept to the reformers. And it really is uh, the capstone of faith in a very large sense. So here's what we're saying, that if faith and repentance... Um, are rooted in the heart as they are expressions of the heart. And as the heart has these threefold capacities, we should be able to see that in repentance. We should be able to see that in faith. We should be able to track these things in Scripture, if I'm right. Um, and if I'm wrong, uh, then at the end of the week you can fire me. And we'll all go home happy. Anyway, so that is that's all I wanted to present tonight, this kind of introduction uh, to get us going. And so you kind of see now the, the larger picture Hopefully I've convinced you of a few things. 
Um, but I'd like to open it up for questions, for anybody who has as a question. Am I allowed to do that? Do I have the authority to do this? I do? Okay, good. Because it's too late. I already started. All right. Who has a question? All right. No questions. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. Anybody have a question? I'm sorry. Peter. now. Um, no, I, I mean, yeah, I think we'll, we'll cover it in, in pieces, I think. Um, and, I, and I think, too, this is helpful, Peter. I think it's a, it's a good question. Like, we're going we're gonna to have a Q&A period uh, Friday morning, I believe. Is this correct? Yes. And so, if I don't satisfy by then, make sure you ask the question then. Or you should also feel free to write down your questions and give them to me, and we can um, answer those on, on Friday. So, so technically, um, Reformed theologians would say faith must precede repentance, that, that we can't repent truly unless we believe. And, and so there's, in that sense, there might be a, an order to it, but I think that um, the inseparability will come out as we start to dig into repentance and especially the hopefulness. Uh, and maybe just to tease one little thing, we have people in scripture that realize they did something wrong and they regretted it and even expressed it with tears, but they were not repenting. And this is one of the most important questions. What is the difference between a person who merely regrets and even is crying tears as opposed to what real repentance is? Because repentance includes faith and it has that hopeful look to, to Christ that even our repenting has a tone of thanksgiving to it because there's light. We know there's light at the end there where this uh, repentance is something that is washing me clean and it's, being, it's something pleasing to God, as he says in Psalm 51. So we'll get at different aspects of that, of that question along the way, but like I said, if I don't satisfy, we'll be sure to. An important passage here to look at ahead would be 2 Corinthians 7 where it talks about worldly grief versus godly grief. And this is the very thing Paul is concerned about there, because a person could be deceived and think they're repenting because they're crying tears and say, no, it's, it's more than that. We need to be careful. I think we ought to be careful if we're never, we're never crying tears and repenting. That would be a concern of mine as well. That would be a great follow-up question too. Anybody else? But let's go with an easier question this time. In the back. Oh. Thank you. Um, your uh, comment about repentance is turning 
Exactly. No, that's good. That's a great question. And I can't wait to hear what Pastor Cotta has to say about that particular. <laughs> Do you want to answer that for us? He's back there. He's kind of trying to hide behind the person. I see you, brother. Uh, no, that's a very good question because it involves every person in this room, right? All of us have repented, and genuinely so, and yet we committed that sin again. And so have they, have they truly not turned from that sin? And so uh, it's, that's a more complex question, I think, and we'll talk about that in turning. What does turning mean? Because there's many ways in which God uses um, that sin, and we thought we had handled it well, and we had it all covered, and he shows us, no, there's a little bit more to this than that. And so part of repenting and turning means to understand that it's not just turning outwardly, but turning inwardly, and that turning inwardly sometimes involves a deeper attitudes or maybe a deeper appreciation for how entrenched that particular sin is. And, and so we could commit the same sin, but maybe not in the same way, and begin to understand um, and appreciate that sin is an offense against God. And to appreciate, too, that there are some habits that we, we've had, and there are some um, proclivities. Some of us have some tendencies. Some of us have uh, more than other people that are so deeply seated that there needs to be a lot of work done. The way C.S. Lewis put it was this way. He, he said, when you go to the dentist, he doesn't give you a pill. If that was the case, everybody would love dentists. Nobody loves dentists because dentists hate people, right? <laughs> now, my brother-in-law is a dentist, so I can say, I know what I'm talking about. And even the instruments they use, they have that, like the drill, has that high-pitched sound, and it's, and it's meant to just annoy you. And just, he's just saying, I know you don't like this sound. That's why I'm using this tool. Um, but what does a dentist do when you have a cavity? He drills down because he's got to get to the bottom of that cavity. And he doesn't just give you a pill. He's got it that he could give you a pill maybe to numb your mouth for a few hours, but that would not solve the problem. He's got to drill all the way down. And in the process of sanctification, God does the very same thing in us. That we think we've confessed this sin. It's like, well, I did this. And, and he has to go all the way down and show you how deeply rooted this is. That you didn't do this because you just thought about it. You did this because you love it. And he has to uproot that love. And he has to give you a greater love and a better love to replace that, that false love. That's what God does. And so doing the same sin repeatedly, many times, it's this learning process. And in fact, where he's showing you this so that you can ultimately make the big turn away from it. John Owen, some think was the greatest English-speaking theologian ever, said, if it were not for that one sin that you've asked God to take away, for not for that one particular sin that you have a problem with, says you would fall away, you would never speak to him again. But it's that one sin that keeps you coming back to him. To show that you're in absolute dependence upon him. Only God can do that. That he can sanctify our falling to temptation to use that to strengthen us and to make us more, more holy. But, I, but that, that's the way I would begin to answer that. But we'll talk about that. And again, if you're not satisfied, then session 11, Q&A. And if I don't satisfy you then, complain to the guys with the yellow tags. The, these guys have all the power, you know. It's intimidating, yellow tags. I only have a white tag. Who am I? All right, another question? Over there, Aiden.
Right. Right. So, so I would sh I would point you to page one. Where's you can have mine. You can have mine. Oh, there you go. So Aiden, there's a definition there, but but essentially, what, what we're saying is that God has given us all kinds of terms that describe the inner person. Paul even talks about the inner man, but the heart is that is a unique word, and that heart. It has these different functions that capture all the ways in which we express ourselves inwardly. If you take the word soul, the word soul in the Old Testament comes from a word that points to the throat and it means life, like this is where breathing is taking place. That's all it means. But heart has, is more complex. The way heart is used, especially in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, it's very much pointed towards wisdom, thinking, contemplation, those sorts of things. But heart can also be used in certain places like Psalm 73, and we'll get into this, those desires, those longings. And then what was very, very important to John Calvin and the reformers was the will of the heart. They felt this was, this was the reformation, understanding the will of the heart and how entrenched we are in our sin against God, that it's only through that powerful summons of a spirit to give us a new heart, take away that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And so it's that threefold capacity, but you don't want to lose the, the sense of unity. These three things are held together always. So when you see the word heart in the Bible, the first thing you're thinking is, this refers to the unity of who I am within, and it comprehends all that I am within. It's, it's the most important word in the Bible for who we are within, in my opinion. But I'm just a preacher, you know. But it's a good question. I wasn't meaning to make fun of you, but... It is on page one. I mean, I had to say something. Oh, you got the kids' version. I'm sure nothing was intended by that. I can give you a grown-up one. I'm sorry. That's my question. Are there more bullets? Okay, if you do not, if you're in a if you're more than 16 years old, oh no, let's, let's go with 14, and you, you wanted one of these and to get one, can you raise your hand? One, two, three, four, five. Some of you don't look 14. Raise your hand again. One, I'm just kidding. One, two, three, four. Okay, hold up your hand and hold it up there. Come on, be, be proud. You want this, all right? Four, five. All right, so I. My wife encouraged me. We brought the printer. I brought my printer to camp. It's like, I, yeah, who brings a printer to camp? I do. You have a printer. We can do this. We can print and copy. Voila. Okay. This is the OPC. We make it happen. Okay. Oh, close up, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's pray, shall we? Our gracious God and Father, again, we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would be the one that would carry us this week, and that you would teach us new things, but that you would also remind us of that which is precious. We thank you, Father, for the faith that has been handed down 
uh, to the saints. We thank you for what we've inherited from our forefathers and those that have been so faithful, but we thank you most of all for scripture. And we thank you, Father, for what it reveals and the most important thing it reveals to us, that there is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ for every sinner. We thank you, Father, for this. And we pray that this week would draw us closer and closer to him and that we would trust him with all of our heart. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.